First Thessalonians chapter 4. We will be reading, studying, and rejoicing in verses 13 to 18. When I look around this room at our church family, the faces that are here, and I think of some who aren't here with us today, I think that every household that's part of our church family has been affected by the loss of a loved one in the decade, not quite, but nearly, that I've been the pastor here. And at a time when someone that you love has been bereaved of their loved one, it can be difficult to know exactly what to say. It can be difficult to know how to to comfort and how to encourage, but you certainly want to. You want to be an encouragement and a blessing in a time like that. And this this past year in particular has been especially difficult for our church family with the losses that have been uh, suffered simply because of the, the frequency of those losses. And uh, it's, been, it's been more than at other times. Um, and we say, you know, it seems like these things come in, in seasons, in times that they're bunched together, you know, and so on. Uh, not that that's necessarily true, but it feels that way. And when I think about the last year, it, it feels like that. How can we comfort one another? So I want to look at First Thessalonians four thirteen to 18 to comfort you but also to equip you with words of comfort and encouragement that you yourselves can share with church family going through difficult time. Let me give you an illustration how we can be just completely ignorant and sometimes even dumb when it comes to these situations. And I'm not using that word lightly. Uh, about a year ago, I was at a funeral home for a visitation of a, a middle-aged woman who had suffered an untimely death whom I didn't know. I didn't know, wasn't connected to the immediate family. Uh, I was there for support for some of the extended family. And I I saw this exchange between the man who had been bereaved of his wife and a woman that clearly didn't know him. But she came up to him, she shook his hand, and she said, I know this isn't fun. And she said it in a tone that was casual. And then she went on to say that she knew it wasn't fun because she had suffered a similar loss when she lost her husband several years before. And this woman wasn't very, she wasn't elderly herself. So two things shocked me in that exchange. First of all, the way, the, what she said and the way she said it. And also I thought, okay, she has no idea, right? But what shocked me was she had been there before. And if anyone should know what word choice and tone are appropriate and what isn't, it should be someone who has gone through a a similar loss. And there could be, you know, reserving judgment, there could be a hundred things in her week or her day or whatever that could have explained her choice of words and her tone. But that doesn't change the fact that what she said and how she said it was rather foolish. We need words to share with those who have lost loved ones. Good words, encouraging words, and and building up words. 
in the life of the church, we are family together. And the Bible calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and who, and we are to weep with those who weep. We are united in one body by one spirit to one hope under one Lord to one faith and baptism before our one God and Father of all, who is over us all and through us all and in us all. Ephesians 4. And that unity that we share together means that we walk together on this glory road. We are walking side by side, not with distance between us, but as a family together, we're walking this way together. We need to encourage and comfort and build each other up with loving words. It's good just to be there. It's good just to be present. But the Lord has equipped us with words that we can use. And that's what we have in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the one passage in the New Testament that speaks most explicitly to how we should comfort one another when one of our family members has lost a loved one in the Lord. So this particularly is speaking of being bereaved of someone in the Lord, a believer, someone who knew and followed Jesus. Now, before I read this text, let me tell you what surprised me as I meditated upon it. Again, this is the clearest passage in the New Testament to address how to comfort each other in these times of loss. And I thought about what we usually say. At least, this is my inclination. I probably can't make the assumption that this is true of everybody. But I think the tendency we have to focus upon is to focus upon where that deceased believer is right now, right? That they are in paradise. They are with Christ. They are in the place of no suffering and no sadness. They are happier now than they have ever been before. They are free. They have peace and joy in the presence of God. Paul says that to die is gain. To depart with Christ is to be better off by far. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So we, we take those words and we use them to encourage one another. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul gives us the clearest instructions of how to comfort one another, this is what surprised me. He does not focus on the present place of the departed believer. And that's our focus normally. He doesn't focus on that. Instead, he focuses on their future. And this is good. And, and I'm not saying by no means that the words that we usually use are wrong. They're not wrong. They're very, very right. But there is more to say. When we have lost a loved one, what do we really want? We want to be with them again. We want to see the one that we've lost. We want to be able to touch them, hug on them, love on them. We want to share with them. We, we want to enjoy them again. We want that more than anything. And in essence, that's what Paul focuses upon. He focuses upon the next time that we see them. He doesn't focus so much on where they are right now apart from us. 
he focuses again on the next time we see them. That's a glorious truth. So what, we're, what we tend to say, at least what I tend to say, is right. It's right about talking about where they are with Jesus, which is, which is better by far. But there's more to say. Encourage one another with these words. So when we encourage those of our family who have lost loved ones in the Lord, we are to tell them about the next time that we see their loved one. Let me just sum it up as we get set to read. The next time you see your loved one, you're going to be with Jesus. The next time we see them, we're going to be with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I say things like, the next time, it doesn't seem so far away. The next time we see them, we'll be with Jesus. Let's read. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This passage clears up so much misunderstanding that we tend to have about what's next for our loved ones and about what is next for us. It seems like the Thessalonian believers had, for some reason that we're not aware of, a a certain level of misunderstanding and ignorance about those of their church family that they had lost to death. And there are so many theories and guesses why they were misunderstanding that we, we really just don't know. I'll throw out an idea, okay? And I really don't believe that this is right. I'm just giving you an example. What if these Thessalonian believers had misunderstood the words of Jesus when he said, the one who endures to the end will be saved? What if they thought that not only must we spiritually endure, but we must physically endure until the second coming of Jesus. And so when they lost some of their church family to death, they thought that these ones uh, who had died were missing out on the second coming. I don't believe that's it. I'm just giving you a a rather random example that I really made up on my own. Commentators, as far as I know, don't suggest that. I'm just suggesting something to you. Whatever it was, they had misunderstanding. And unfortunately, they were affected by that misunderstanding to the point that they were beginning to grieve like the world grieves. They thought that their lost loved ones 
the ones they had lost to death, you understand what I mean, were somehow disadvantaged that they were going to be shortchanged, maybe miss out on the second coming altogether. I don't know all what they thought, but I do know that they were grieving to the point of it looking like the world. When we lose someone that we love, it is natural to grieve. The more you love them, the more sorrow you're going to have when God calls them out of this world. Where they were before in your heart and in your life is going to be naturally replaced by hurt. That's natural. So we grieve. We grieve. But not like the world grieves. For the world grieves without any real confident hope. They might say things that make them feel better, but they don't have any solid, true revelation coming from the one true God to give them that hope. And that's what we have. So we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Now, many people ask, before I move into the text, many people ask, will we know each other in glory? Very, very common question. I believe that 1 Thessalonians puts that question completely to rest. Because think about it. If we weren't going to know one another in glory, like we had to meet one another all over again, we don't recognize each other and so on, if that was the case, what would Paul say to comfort the Thessalonian believers? He would say to them, they're with Jesus. They're in the place better by far. To die is gain because they're with him. He would focus on their present state. And I think that this is a, a clear inference from this text. That because Paul focuses on not only their future, but our shared future together with Jesus, we can infer this means we will know one another. Because if we, again, if we weren't going to know and recognize one another, Paul wouldn't talk about our shared future together. It wouldn't be so much of a comfort. But it is a great comfort to know that we will be together again. And it all hinges on Jesus. It all hinges on Jesus. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Everything that Paul is going to promise us in these several verses hinges upon the person and work of Jesus. That He came, lived for us, died for us, and we believe that for us He rose again. And it's not surprising, is it, that it all hinges on Jesus? Because all history hinges on Jesus. All destiny hinges on Jesus. Every promise of God hinges on Jesus. Right? Every promise is yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. So our future destiny and the destiny of our loved ones who have been called out of this world before us hinges on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are tied to Jesus. We are united to Him in such a way that His past is our past and His future is our future. So the Bible says that where he has been, we have been. Where he went, we have gone. How he lived is our life. 
That's what it means to be united with Christ. And where He is, we will be. And where He is going, we will go. I'll give you an example of this from Romans chapter 6, verse 5. Look at what Paul says again here in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. He says, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, God must, therefore, bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Romans 6, verse 5. If we have been united with Him in a death like His we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Where He has been, we have been. We have been, really and truly, not literally, physically, but really and truly, we have been already to the cross. We died with Him. We have been to the grave because we were buried with Him to sin. And certainly, we have been made alive with Him and will be in a resurrection like His, raised with Him. Everything hinges on Christ. We are tied to Jesus. So our past is certain. And our future is certain. The past is settled for us. And the future is gloriously bright. So when He comes, God will bring with Him all those who have fallen asleep. I want to raise three common questions and answer them together quickly before we move on with this text. First of all, this term, fallen asleep, from verse 14. Does fallen asleep mean that deceased believers are in an unconscious state? Some call this soul sleep. Are believers, deceased believers, in an unconscious state until the second coming of Jesus. Is that what Paul means by that term, fallen asleep? Short answer is no. Now, if that was the case, that they were in soul sleep right now, in an unconscious state, Paul wouldn't have said in Philippians 1.21 that to die is gain. The only way that death is gain for us is if death is the passageway into the presence of our Lord Jesus. If upon death we do not go into the presence of Christ in, and be conscious there, Paul wouldn't have said that to die and be with Christ is better by far. He wouldn't have said in 2 Corinthians 5, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. There are other passages as well that show us when Paul says fallen asleep, he's not talking about the soul, he's not talking about the spirit of the deceased, he's talking about the body. And this is simply a common term for the dead body, that it's asleep for a while. The soul is very much conscious, very much alive, aware in the presence of Jesus, while the body remains asleep. But this brings up a second question. Does this mean that deceased believers don't have a body until resurrection day? And I can't say no on this one but I'll say not necessarily, okay? It may be that deceased believers have a temporary body until their earthly body is resurrected. This is what we know. We know that deceased believers are in paradise, just like Jesus to the believing dying thief. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. We know that deceased believers are in the presence of God that they are in conscious bliss and in perfect peace and joy with their Savior, offering up prayers and offering up 
songs of praise like they have never offered up before. And it seems to me, from the description of them that we find in Revelation, I believe that they have a visible form. Whether it looks like what we think of as a body, I don't know. Whether it's a temporary body that looks much like ours, I don't know. What I do know is they have not yet received the perfect body that is going to be raised up on Resurrection Day, and we're going to see that in a moment. But this brings up a third question. What if there is nothing left to the body of the one who's died by Resurrection Day? I mean, think of a saint who was lost at sea hundreds of years ago. There is absolutely no trace of that individual left. What about the body of a believer who was martyred in the early days of the church by by burning? And there is no trace of them left. What about that? Think of our God, who in Romans 4, it's said about him that he brings the dead back to life and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so on that day, he will call back into existence the body that once was. And we have no reason for doubt whatsoever. Paul wants us to know that our deceased loved ones are not disadvantaged in any way. They are not shortchanged in the least. In fact, it, he, it's, he seems to be implying that the advantage is theirs. Because those who have gone through death before us will go before us when Christ returns. And then he describes, beginning in verse 16, he paints the picture. In, in, in a very broad brush, certainly. He describes the coming of Jesus. The word for coming is parousia. And it's a pretty loaded word because it was used to describe a visiting dignitary to a city, like a king or a general, who would come to the city and whose coming was announced beforehand by the blast of a trumpet. And the city would not, you know, just stay where they were or think, you know, I I don't know, I don't feel like going out. The city would come out and the city would welcome this visiting king or this, this general. And that's, that's all loaded in this word. These were not casual events by no means. So on the day of the Lord, the coming of Jesus, the parousia, Paul says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. I think three words kind of sum this up. Glory, authority, and power. The old King James Version gave us that familiar translation. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And that's a good word, but there's little, there's a little more to this word than shout. It carries with this, carries with it the idea of authority. It is used very often for a loud command, like a, a commander urging on his, his soldiers, a captain of a ship urging on the rowers, or, um, a chariot driver urging on his horses. He gives the cry of command. And I have no doubt in my mind that the Lord descending with this shout of command is coming with his own shout. It's his shout. It's his command. 
Because in John 5, this is what Jesus said. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Foreshadowed in John 11. You remember the resurrection of Lazarus? When Jesus came to the tomb and He said, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man, the dead man's body obeyed and came back to life. And he emerged from the grave. That's a preview. A foreshadowing. There's actually going to be two resurrections. The Bible says, Blessed are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second resurrection that's going to come much later than the first is reserved for those who are unbelievers. But this is what's being described here. That the Lord comes with the shout of command and beckons to the living and the dead who belong to Him. It says, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. I want you to listen to Matthew chapter 24, verse 31. And I think all those same elements of the command, the angelic presence, and the trumpet call are all there. Uh, you can see the parallel in Matthew 24, 31 to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. He says, He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The end of verse 16, on into 17 now. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The dead will rise first. And then per Christ's direction, we will follow. But there's not going to be... 1 Corinthians 15 describes this as to say it happens uh, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that we are raised and that we are changed. There's not a moment's hesitation. There's not some kind of time of deliberation. Don't you wish, isn't? Don't you wish that we obeyed like that right now? We constantly debate in our minds the commands of God. We weigh things which will make me happier in this moment to obey or not. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying we think consciously in those terms, but that's what we do. As we hesitate and as we deliberate over obedience or going our own way. But on that day, not a moment's hesitation. No deliberation. It will be wholehearted and whole-bodied obedience to Jesus Christ. And this is what I'm looking forward to, especially. It's going to be like that for every moment forward. That's how we're going to obey for the rest of eternity. Without hesitation, without any deliberation. The dead will rise first. Those who are living at that time will follow and we will be caught up together. This word, caught up, is very forceful. It's a very strong word. In some cases, it's actually a violent word, but not here. It's just very strong. We will be seized upward as Jesus comes for us. And that's where, of course, we get the word rapture. It's the, the Latin for that, that Greek word. So together, 
from all corners and heights and depths of the earth and the sea, untold number numbers of believers will rise together to meet our returning king in the clouds. I remember Leah's first day of school for pre-K. She was almost four years old. But we have the moment on video, so it's really, really sticks in our, in our memories. She's got this great big backpack on her, which, you know, wasn't loaded down or anything. But this great big backpack that we little Leah is just, it was a lot for her. So she's hopping down the steps and she stumbles a bit at the end. And then, and she looks, you know, out and she says, the birds can't see. Why, Leah? It's, it's foggy today. The birds can't see. And it makes me think, uh, I was thinking about that moment when it comes to this passage. Wouldn't it be better if all of this happened on a clear, sunny day without a cloud in the sky? If this will be, you know, this awesome spectacle, and if we want to see what's going on, wouldn't it be better for a clear sky? No. Because the Apostle Paul is not talking about puffy, wispy clouds. He's talking about the glory clouds. He's talking about the cloud that came down into the tabernacle, the cloud of the glory of God that drove everybody out, whose, whose presence nobody could abide. He's talking about the, the cloud that descended on the, the mountain where Jesus was transfigured, where his glory was unveiled. The cloud that surrounded the disciples. The cloud from which God spoke. The, the cloud before which those disciples cowered and hid their faces. That's the cloud. But we will not be driven out or away by this cloud. The Lord Jesus Christ is beckoning the living and the dead into the glory clouds. I'll give you three passages to prove this. I saw in the night visions. Here is Daniel, many years before the coming of Jesus, having a vision of the coming of Christ. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here is Jesus in First Thessalonians coming to claim the kingdom that is rightfully his, the throne of David upon the earth. And we are being beckoned to welcome him in the clouds. Those are the clouds of heaven. Do you remember when Jesus was standing before the high priest at his trial? And the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? What an answer. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Revelation 1. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So do you think with all of those passages, the sum of them considered, that Paul was just saying, yeah, we're going to go up into a bunch of clouds? These are the glory clouds. 
we will go into the clouds of glory to ever be with the Lord of glory. Now, just a couple more things for our consideration. Why does Paul focus on the resurrection of the dead for the comfort of those who have been left behind instead of on their present place with Jesus? Why isn't he talking about where they are now instead talking about their future? I want to give you two, re two reasons. First, we must realize that Jesus is not the Savior of our souls only. He is the Savior of our souls and our bodies. As soon as we start thinking that the body is unimportant, we are giving in to that old Gnostic tendency that says the spirit is good, but material things and flesh and stuff that is tangible and visible is evil. But what did the Lord pronounce over his creation? He called it good. And Jesus will not only save the souls that the Father has given to him, he will also save the bodies. And that is a very clear inference from what he promised in John 6.39. He said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Does he need to raise up the soul to resurrect the spirit of those who are his on the last day? No, because those are already with him, except, well, certainly those who have died are already with him. It's the body, everybody, whether living or deceased, that needs to be raised up. Jesus will lose neither the soul nor the body. So that's one reason I believe that he focuses on the resurrection of the dead. A second reason, Paul focuses on the resurrection of the dead instead of their present place with Jesus, is because he is looking forward to this future salvation that we are all going to experience together. The final perfecting of the saint. I'm borrowing terminology now from Romans 8. The redemption of our bodies. The glorification of the saint is a future salvation that will happen to every last one of God's people all at once. And it is going to be the most awesome thing ever seen in heaven or on earth. Everyone who is a believer at that time alive on earth or alive in heaven but body in the grave, will be finally saved on the day of the Lord. Those who have gone into glory now have not experienced the final, full salvation. They're certainly more saved than we are. We're, okay, let me explain. We're all saved from the penalty of sin equally. Whether we have gone to be with Jesus or whether we are alive here on earth, believing in him. We're all saved from the penalty of our sin equally, equally justified. We are in the process of sanctification. But certainly, those whose spirits have been made perfect in glory are more sanctified than we are, practically speaking. But there's coming a day, a final salvation, where not only the soul will be made perfect, but the body and of course, those who have died and gone to be with Jesus, the soul is perfect already, but the body, not yet. This moment will happen for all believers to the last of us 
all at once. All at once. It's incredible to think about. There are certainly times when it's good to be alone. A lot of, we like to be alone. Selfishly, we call it me time. Whatever, bad term. Not really a very good Christian term. But anyway, it's good to be alone at times. But the best experiences of life, the most joyful experiences of life, aren't they the ones that we experience together with people? I mean, we were made for this. It is not good that man should be alone, God said in the beginning. The best experiences of life are what we experience together. Right now, we, 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 sh- we have a fellowship of salvation, a fellowship in salvation. We experience salvation together when we participate together in the Lord's table. We, we take these elements and we receive by grace through faith the benefits again of what Jesus did for us at the cross. So that's a fellowship in salvation, but this one that's coming, it's a fellowship in glorification. On the day that Jesus returns, it's going to happen. It's the redemp- again, the redemption of our bodies, when even our bodies are freed from what is called in Romans, the bondage of corruption. And that's what Paul is directing our hopes toward. The fellowship of our salvation in glorification when our bodies, whether they are living or dead, are redeemed and we are caught up together into the clouds of the glory of Christ and made like Him. So I'm submitting this to you. All the saints in glory are waiting on this greater glory. They're waiting on this greater glory. The greatest day for every saint is a day still to come. And it's called in the Scriptures, the day of the Lord. The Bible says in Romans 8 that it is the hope of heaven and the hope of earth. It is called the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So heaven is glorious. Heaven is paradise. To be in the presence of Jesus, there is nothing like it to compare on the earth. But no moment in glory surpasses that moment when Jesus calls all his people to himself for final redemption and completes our salvation in every last one of us at once. It will be on the day of the Lord when all who hear his command rise to meet him in the glory clouds. So Paul sums it up. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What a passage of Scripture. What an incredible promise. This glorious salvation that is our future together. This is no fun. Is not these words. Keep your chin up. Is not these words. Keep looking up. Is good. It's good. But it's not these words. I am here for you is also very good. But it's not these words. Let's sum these words up. The next time we see them, we will be with Jesus. I just want you to think of it. All of you who have lost a loved one in the Lord, the next time you see them, you will be with Jesus. 
And the promise here is that this may very well happen before you die. Let's pray. Father, in our memories, we can see one loved person after another who has already gone before us. Thank you for this clear word that they are not in the least disadvantaged, not now and not at the coming of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that the next time we see them, whether you have called us out of this world through death beforehand, or whether it's at the coming of your Son, the next time we see them, we're going to be with Jesus. Until that day comes, I pray that we would live faithfully unto you with that great hope of Jesus' return fixed in our hearts, influencing every single choice and every decision that we make, giving us right priorities, putting everything in its place, and affecting our view of the entire world, all that's going on, whether it's personal or whether it's global, we know from your word that your kingdom cannot be shaken. We look forward to the day of Christ's return to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Send him soon. We ask in his name. Amen.